0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, Fountain of Life. It's such a privilege and an honor to be with you this morning and to look at God's Word. This morning, we're going to be studying from John chapter 11 and the story of Jesus and is raising Lazarus from the dead. So let's turn our Bibles to John chapter 11. We'll be looking at um, nearly the entire chapter. We're going to go verses 1 all the way to 53. So again, that's John chapter 11, verses 1 to 53. Let's hear God's word. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. A stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face unwrapped, or excuse me, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. He did not say this of his own accord but being high priest that year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not only for the and not for the nation only but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad so from that day on they made plans to put him to death this is God's word let's pray Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this incredible view of who Jesus is, and why he came, and what he has done, and we pray that Jesus' very purpose in that place and in that moment would take place in us, in our minds, in our hearts, even as we hear your word again this morning. Help us, Lord, through times of sufferings, help us to have our eyes on Christ and to see him for who he is. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I wonder, what is your guiding light, your hope, your source of truth, especially in times of suffering? Suffering's always been part of life in this world, we know that, but maybe it feels more explicit lately. Blooming COVID cases, state lockdowns, job losses, many experiencing financial collapse, loneliness, despair. It's important to ask, where does your heart go when everything seems to go wrong? What is your guiding light, especially through suffering? So this morning here at Fountain of Life, we're beginning a new sermon series for Christmas as we celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus. We're gonna take a break from the book of Revelation through December. Um, One reason is I didn't wanna be working through the trumpets of wrath for Christmas, you know? January is a better month for wrath. Um, However, this Christmas series is inspired by a major theme in Revelation. If you remember chapters four and five before the throne room of God, John saw the scroll that signified God's plan for human history. And John despaired because there's no one worthy. There's no one who can heal us, who can fix us, who can rule us. But then John hears of the Lion of Judah and he turns to see the Lamb who was slain. And we know, of course, these are pictures of Jesus. And we see there that he is the only one worthy to take that scroll. So in in that scene, we discover something wonderful about Jesus. He is both lion and lamb. 18th century theologian Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon on this theme, and it was entitled, The Excellency of Jesus Christ. And he said, drawing on this image from Jesus as lion and lamb, he said, there's an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies In Jesus Christ. And we can imagine the greatness and the terror and the majesty of a lion. We can can think of the meekness and gentleness and humility of a lamb. But to see those qualities simultaneously in the one and same person, wow, that's a unique kind of beauty. And that's the kind of king our hearts need. So for Christmas, we're going to look... And some accounts from Jesus' life in the Gospels. And we're going to see how these stories display this admirable conjunction that Jesus alone possesses. So we'll work from all four Gospels kind of traveling backwards chronologically to Jesus' birth. This morning we are going to see Jesus in the story of Lazarus from the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. As you read John, you know that the theme of light is so important in this gospel. Light versus darkness communicates so much. It communicates truth versus deception. Hope versus despair. Enjoying the love of God versus facing the wrath of God. Light versus darkness equals life versus death. So that's why I ask, what is your guiding light, especially through suffering? What should be the light? Of your life, So let's try to answer that question as we encounter this amazing story together. Uh, it is a story, so I want to kind of unpack it with scenes or episodes. We'll do six scenes and see who Jesus is, what he's done, and consp- consider what the response of our hearts ought to be to him. So we'll dive right in. Scene one, I'm thinking of verses one to six here. A major point in this first scene is just to see this family and realize Jesus loves them, and they love him. Uh, We meet Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus, and we realize they are close friends of Jesus. They believe in him, they follow him, they love him, and they know he loves them. Well, as it happens, their brother, Lazarus, becomes gravely ill, seriously sick. So we ask kind of an obvious question. What would you do if you were Mary and Martha and you had seen Jesus do amazing miracles and you loved him and trusted him and you knew he loved you and you knew you were friends? What would you do if one you love was seriously ill? Well, they do the obvious thing. Look at John eleven three. So the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Just notice how did they refer to their brother Lazarus when it came to Jesus. Jesus, this is your friend. This is someone you love. And here is where we hit this apparent contradiction that will strike pain into all our hearts at some point in our lives. Jesus does a surprising thing that causes all of us to wrestle internally. Look at verses 5 to 6, John 11:5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. What do you learn? How does Jesus feel about these people? He loves them. Verse 6. So, when he heard Lazarus was ill, he what? He ran there immediately. He acted instantly? No, in this verse, verse 6, when he heard Lazarus was ill, he what? He stayed. He stayed. He did not go. He let Lazarus die. Jesus let Lazarus, Mary, and Martha suffer. And it's this apparent contradiction. We, We all know so well. We think, Jesus, if you love us and are powerful to heal us, why Do you let us suffer? You know, it's almost automatic for our hearts to assume that if Jesus loved us, we wouldn't suffer. There's actually kind of twisted versions of Christianity that actually teach this. If you really believe strongly enough, powerfully enough, if you get your life together, you won't suffer. Our hearts can so easily assume either Jesus, if he loves us, he won't let us suffer, or if he really does love us, hmm, you know, a popular Bible translation even reads like this. This is how one translation puts it, John eleven five. 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. What's that next word in verse 6? Yet, when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed. It gives you the idea that Jesus allowing suffering makes no real sense in the claim of his love. If he loves you, you won't suffer. If you're suffering, it must be because he doesn't love you, right? No, look again. Look again. This is the better translation, John eleven five. 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. What's that next word? Verse 6. So he stayed. Jesus loved, so he stayed. Why did, why did Jesus stay? Why did he allow this suffering? Did you see it? It's because... He loves. It's because he loves. How can this be? Jesus tells us, look at John eleven four. Jesus said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God that the son of God may be glorified through it. How does Jesus feel about these people? He loves them. What is love? Love is to give yourself up to enable the very best for others, those you love. And what does Jesus want to do for these people he loves? He says, "This is for the glory of God, so that the son of God may be glorified through it." Listen, friends, this is so important. Jesus allows temporary suffering in the lives of those he loves in order to spotlight the beauty of who he is because the most loving thing Jesus can do for you is enable you to see the glory of God. In him, And so often the best stage for Jesus' love in this way is suffering and the way Jesus will undo it. So Jesus said this illness will not end ultimately in death. Sorrow and loss will not be the end of the story. No, Jesus insists is loving for him to stay in this way to allow suffering, to use it. Because in the end, Jesus says, his people will see his glory and rejoice in him like never before. So the first scene of our story tells us this, because Jesus loves his people, he uses suffering to enable them to further see the glory of who he is. This takes us to the second scene, verses 7 to 16. I won't go through this in detail for time's sake, but I think In summarizing this section, part of what this section shows us is how suffering so often feels like chaos. I mean, it's so plain here. The disciples do not understand what is going on. Jesus finally says, okay, it's time. Let's go back to Judea and Lazarus. The disciples respond, wait, the authorities there want to kill you. We can't go back there. Jesus says, no, let's go wake Lazarus up. They say, well, if he's sleeping, he'll wake up on his own. We don't need to go. In my mind, the disciples seem afraid and confused, don't they? And to be honest, I'm sure if we were in their shoes, we would have been afraid and confused as well. In fact, let's be really honest. Some of us are afraid and confused right now in the midst of our own suffering. We have this sense, we have no idea what's going on. But it's so beautiful to see that even though sometimes Jesus' people are afraid and confused, Jesus isn't. Look at John 11, 14. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Friends, listen, even though the disciples have no clue as to what's going on and how to handle things, Jesus does, and he is acting for their sake and in their best interest, even as they are oblivious to what is going on what a lesson for us in our suffering sometimes we are confused and afraid and we're wondering what is going on. Is it possible, is it possible that in your situation, Jesus knows better, that Jesus sees more? Is it possible that even in suffering, Jesus is in control and working for your good? Could Jesus be able to say to you exactly what he said to them? Could he say to you in your situation, for your sake, I am glad? If you belong to him and are following him, it's not just possible that he's working for your good in your situation. It's a promise. This section shows us that in the confusion and fear of suffering, Jesus calls his people to trust him as we wait for him to bring it to resolve. To trust him. Look at John eleven nine. nine. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of the day? If anyone walks in the light, He does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What's our light for life? Especially in suffering. Jesus is saying, it's me. In John chapter 8, Jesus actually proclaimed explicitly. He said, I am the light of the world. He is truth itself, life itself, hope itself. And so there's this encouragement. Even when you're in the darkness of your own suffering, follow Jesus no matter the cost. Trust him. He knows what's going on, and he is using it for the sake of his people. He will light the way. And Thomas here is such a wonderful example of the response of Jesus' people. Look at verse 16. Thomas caught the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas doesn't understand everything that's going on, but he's got the idea. Jesus is worth the cost. So our first scene, because Jesus loves his people, he uses suffering to enable them to further see his glory. Second scene, until that suffering is resolved, the only hope for his people is to follow him no matter the cost, trusting that Jesus is working for their good in ways they cannot see. Third scene, verses 17 to 27. We see Jesus arrive in Bethany, kind of this suburb of Jerusalem. Uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus probably were a bit of a prominent family, and that's why so much of the crowd from Jerusalem has come to mourn with them. You can imagine the emotion. You can imagine the intensity, as fi- especially as Jesus finally arrives. Martha hears of his coming, kind of escapes the crowd, and goes to meet Jesus in private. And you know it hurts. Mary seems to be too hurt. She won't even go with Martha to welcome Jesus. So Martha approaches Jesus. John eleven twenty one. 21, we see what she says. You see here just the echo of her pain, the echo of what they've been questioning these last several days. John eleven twenty one. 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You can hear what's in that question, can't you? just lament. Why didn't you come? If you love us, why didn't you come? Why'd you let it happen? Why are you late? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yet even as Martha laments, she's lamenting in faith. Even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She has faith. She's struggling in her faith. It's so important to see how Jesus responds to her, the way Jesus directs her focus and attention. Look at what Jesus says in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha responds, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Martha had the normal Jewish expectation that at the last day, God's people would rise, but Jesus wants her to see more. Specifically, he wants her to see more of him. Look at John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Martha, all these things you hope for are found right here. In me. Listen to this claim of Jesus about himself. He is claiming to be truly and personally God in the flesh. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus uses this phrase, I am, that's an echo of the name of God revealed in the law. I am. And look what he calls himself. I am the life. The creator, the sustainer, the upholder. Moreover, I am the resurrection. What's in the idea of resurrection? Well, first you have to add something beautiful that tragically was corrupted and died. But then is now remade, reformed, recreated. Jesus is the creator himself who also takes what is broken and remakes it to make it all the more beautiful, all the more joyful. He is saying, I am the resurrection. I personally undo death and make things better than they ever were before for my people who trust in me. What does Jesus wanna do in Martha here? I appreciate what D.A. Carson says about this passage. Carson writes, Jesus' concern is to divert Martha's Martha's focus from an abstract belief in what takes place on the last day to a personalized belief in him who alone can provide it. How do you and I need to move from an abstract belief in what will take place in the end to a personalized belief In Jesus Christ, who is life and the resurrection. Do you personally know and follow and trust this one, this Jesus who has come, this Jesus who looks us in the eye and promises us things about his very self? Scene three says that in the darkness of suffering, Jesus promises to be resurrection life for his people who believe in him. So let's just review. Scene one, because Jesus loves his people, he uses suffering to enable them to further see his glory. Scene two, until the suffering is resolved, the only hope for his people is to follow and trust in him no matter the cost, believing that he's working for their good. Scene three, in the darkness of suffering, trust in Jesus and who he is as resurrection life for those who believe in him. In scene four, Jesus encounters Mary. You see this is in uh, verses 28 to 32. As soon as he interacts with Martha, Martha uh, sends, goes and calls for her sister Mary saying, the teacher's here and calling for you. So we just remember Mar- Mary stayed home for some reason. She, she wouldn't come out and meet Jesus at first. We don't exactly know why, but we can guess due to pain, due to hurt. And yet Jesus calls for her to come to him. I think there's something to see here. You think it's true that sometimes in our pain, in our own suffering, we kind of want to hide from Jesus in our hearts? You think it's true that in our suffering we can get a little uh, spiritually distant? In our disappointment, our doubt, our discouragement, we want to. Kind of avoid Jesus from the heart. Listen, if you're His, He's calling to you in love to come to Him, to look to Him in the eye, to go to Him, as the psalm says, to pour out your heart to Him, to cry out. And as Jesus calls Mary, she gets up immediately and comes. She comes, she comes, and look what she says in verse 11:32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. That's what we do. And says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's that same response that Martha had. It's It's the question they had been stewing over for several days. If you love us, why didn't you come? Then Mary just breaks down and weeps. We can understand that. But notice Jesus' response now to Mary. Mary and Martha had the same complaint, but Jesus' response to each one of them was very different. It's so beautiful to to realize that Jesus knows what each one of us needs exactly when we need it. He gave Martha this powerful statement of truth about who he is, and we need that, but he gives Mary something different. Look at John 11, 33 to 36. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Isn't it amazing that in this case, Jesus doesn't say a word. Instead, he feels. He expresses Emotion, you know, part of the language describing Jesus' response here can be translated to mean um, he snorted like a horse. Or it's the idea that he gave out a roar of anger. Why is Jesus responding this way? You know, looking back, you know, 20-20 hindsight, we can say, hey, Jesus, uh, he obviously knows exactly what he's about to do in just a moment. You could guess he'd be like, hey, no big deal. Watch what I'm going to do. But that's not his attitude at all. He feels, he roars, he groans, he weeps. And here we see something truly amazing. Not only is Jesus truly God, he is truly human. He's, He's not just distant and separate in transcendent glory. He is glorious, but he has come into our mess with us in order to save us from our mess. And he feels it. He feels it. He weeps in what I want to call compassionate rage over sin, death, and unbelief. Compassionate rage. You know, as Christians, we know that suffering is a consequence of our shared human sin. And even death, in a way, is unnatural. It's not according to design. No, we die due to our sin. We have rebelled against the author of life, and the wages of sin is death. And we cannot defeat these enemies of sin, suffering, and death on our own. But Jesus has come to fight our battles, and he has come with compassion for us, and he has come with rage against our enemies. So Jesus asks, Where have you laid him? And you can hear him saying, Where's my friend? I've come to reclaim him. I love this quote from B.B. Warfield. Warfield writes of this moment It is death that is the object of Jesus' wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death, and whom Jesus has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage, and he advances to the tomb as a champion who prepares for conflict. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive, a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. Not in cold, unconcerned, but in flaming wrath against the foe. Jesus smites in our behalf. What a glorious savior we have. And in the message of this fourth scene, we see that in the darkness of suffering, we can trust in Jesus' compassionate zeal to care for his people and defeat their foes of sin, suffering, and death. That takes us to the fifth scene, verses 38. 44, there's Jesus deeply moved again, feeling this compassionate anger again and he comes to the tomb and you kind of have a bit of a face off the light of the world versus the darkness of death Jesus Christ, the son of God who took on flesh, staring into the face of what sin brings and this enemy of death and he says open the tomb open the tomb If you can just imagine that scene, all these people have followed. They're all there watching. They're watching Jesus weep. He walks to the tomb. Open the tomb. What? You know, here it's Martha who interjects. Jesus, this is awkward. The body's going to smell. It's been four days. and You know, this is highlighted to show Lazarus was dead, okay? decomposition had begun. He is going to reek of death. Jesus, don't do this. Don't open the tomb. We're reminded here in the example of Martha, you know, in the weakness of our faith, we have such small concepts of how good Jesus really is and how beautiful what he will do for us will truly be. And Jesus seems to be saying, I'm better than you think. I mean, he did say, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So then Jesus prays as they open the tomb. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know you always hear me. I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Look now at John 11, 43. When Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out. Jesus said, Dead man, wake up and do it now. Decomposition is reversed. Brain tissue is reactivated. The heart begins pumping oxygenated blood. The lungs start breathing. The creator, the resurrection, has reclaimed and recreated his own. And the person, the friend, the brother, the one we lost, the one we loved, is with us again in living flesh. And Jesus raised him with a word. Do you see who Jesus is? Dead bodies come to life in obedience to the word of Jesus. You know, many commentators have noted if Jesus had not said, Lazarus, come out, all the tombs of the world would have opened. And one day that's exactly what will happen. See Jesus' sovereignty. How's this for a picture of the free will of Jesus? Dead bodies come to life at his word. His will is sovereign. His word is decisive. You know, read Ephesians 2. This is what God has done in our hearts so that we can see Jesus and believe. We were dead in our transgressions and our sins and our fleshly passions, but God made us alive in Christ. And this is what Jesus will do for our bodies when he returns. Oh, we can only imagine this moment as the crowd looked into that tomb and out through the shadows kind of waddled this wrapped up, these reaching arms. What would it have been like uh, there would have been screams, there would have been laughter, there would have been jumping, crying, shock. In fact, everyone seems so spellbound, Jesus actually actually has to remind them to help Lazarus out. Oh, Jesus' sovereign victory over death itself shows us, doesn't it, the glory of who he is. This was his plan the entire time, to reveal himself as the light of the world, who truly loves and does resurrect his people in his own resurrection life power. And we find the resolve, don't we, to the apparent contradiction. That apparent contradiction between the love and power of Jesus and the way he lets his people suffering, it's resolved right here in the revelation of his glory, of who he is and the sweetness of the resurrection life he will sovereignly bring For each one of his people. Let's review. First scene. Because Jesus loves his people, he uses suffering to enable them to further see his glory. Scene two, until the suffering is resolved, the only hope for his people is to trust him, that he is working for their good. Scene three, in the darkness of suffering, hope in the one, the Lord Jesus, who is life, who is the resurrection for his people. Four. scene, in the darkness of suffering, trust in Jesus' compassionate zeal to fight our foes, Fifth scene, Jesus loves his people by revealing his glory as the Son of God who sovereignly brings resurrection life. That's what he does. One more thing to see about his glory. We see it in this surprising scene that follows. Verses 5 to 43 show you the different reactions in the crowd. Many believed, well, of course. I mean, you would expect that a nation waiting for their Messiah after seeing Him bring a dead man to life would be his at this point. They would say, He's the one. And some believed. But amazingly, some schemed in hatred and in enmity. How can this be? How can you see an undeniable miracle like this and do what these people do? Want to kill him? Well, we remember, don't we, that faith in Christ is not ultimately about evidence because you and me, we're not ultimately neutral. We're not actually objective. We have hearts with desires. And it's a sad reality that some will hate Jesus in the face of every evidence. The religious leaders here are an example of that. Why? This is because part of genuine faith is humility. It's giving up control. Of your own life, it's dying to self-centered, God-denying autonomy. It's a confession of sin, and it's a look to Jesus as the great value. Jesus is the one worthy to be king, and many, 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 especially among the religious, are unwilling to bow the knee in this play, in this way. So the religious leaders have a meeting where, they're de- where, where they decide if everyone follows Jesus' as king, Rome's going to crush us. We'll lose our place as leaders. See that? We'll lose our place as the ones in charge. We'll lose our very nation, so there's only one option. Let's kill him. Look at the words of Caiaphas, the high priest of the time. John 11:49. 49. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all? you got to love people like that. You, love, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. But listen here, verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Did you hear it? Better than one man should die for the people. There's a deep, deep irony here. What did Caiaphas mean? Caiaphas meant, well, let's murder Jesus so our nation and our place can continue. We can stay in control. But God was kind of saluting the uniform on high priest here. And God himself was speaking a deeper message. God meant Jesus will die in the place of true Israel, his people, so that they can live. Ironically, because the nation of Israel on the whole rejected Jesus, Rome did crush the nation, and the Pharisees and priests did lose their place forever. That happened in 70 AD. But because God crushed Jesus on the cross in our place, those who believe in him from every nation will inherit his eternal kingdom. And enjoy it forever. And you know what? Jesus knew this as he raised Lazarus. He knew this. Jesus knew this exchange had to happen. This is part of that compassionate zeal. Jesus knew that to get Lazarus out of the tomb, he would have to go in. Jesus knew that to give his people eternal life, he would have to pay the price of eternal judgment. The reality is, we have sinned against God and deserve his wrath. We don't deserve resurrection to eternal life. We deserve death and hell. But Jesus came to make the exchange, Jesus came to go into sin and death and condemnation in our place. As Jesus was on the cross, the wrath of God that we deserved fell on him. Jesus died so that we might live. He went down into death so that we might come out with new life. Hmm. Do you see the majestic beauty of Jesus? Do you see the... Admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in him. Do you see how he's the lion and the lamb and as such is the light of the world? Don't you see that as a lamb he died, the perfect sacrifice? He paid the debt we owe so that we could inherit him and what he deserves? Like a lamb, Jesus died. Like a lion, he rose in victory, triumphing over our enemies of sin and death. Jesus is the lion-like lamb. He's the eternal son of God. He reigns over suffering with wisdom and power for our good. His word has sovereign power over death itself. He has conquered sin and death for his people. He rose from the dead. He will return to judge the earth in perfection, and he will save and raise all his people who trust in him. He's also the lamb-like lion. He took on human flesh to enter into our mess. You guys there's no answer to the problem of suffering like Jesus where God himself enters into our suffering with us and for us in order to undo it forever. Jesus is a lamb-like lion who weeps in compassion who fights our enemies with zeal and does it by giving himself up for us in love. He died as our lamb so he could reign as our lion. As Edward says, there is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. Who is your guiding light? For all things, especially in suffering. We see from this passage, Jesus alone is worthy. He alone is worthy of your trust, of your hope, of your allegiance, of your worship. I got three applications I want for you to work out as a response to this passage. Number one, have you believed in Jesus Christ For your salvation? Have you personally looked to Him in repentance of turning away from your sin and trusting in who He is and what He's done for you in His perfect life, His death on the cross, His resurrection? Have you said, Save me from my sins? Have you called out to Jesus Christ? Trust Him for salvation. Second, are you hoping and trusting in Him in the midst of your suffering? Are you aware and believing in the reality that Jesus is in control and acting for your sake? And are you willing to follow him even though you don't understand every detail about how it works, no matter the cost? Is he that beautiful to you, that worthy? Number three, are you abandoned to follow him? Are you abandoned to follow him? Look at the freedom we have if we believe this. What's the worst thing anyone can do to you? Uh, I guess it would be death. And what's Jesus do to death? He undoes death. You're going to rise from the dead. Jesus is the resurrection of life. Our suffering will be undone. Our suffering will come untrue Jesus is the resurrection and the life and by faith alone we are his and he is ours how odd that to set us free to love and serve him with freedom it's hard to say and I'm no professional at it but we have nothing to fear Jesus is the lamb who is our lion and he is ours let's pray Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your very Son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you would come and take on flesh and enter into our suffering. In fact, suffer worse than any of us ever have or will. In fact, take the very suffering we deserve in our place. Uh, We believe you that you are the Son of God, that you are the life, the resurrection and the life. You are the light of the world, you are truth. Be our light. Like you did with Martha, draw our eyes to you and who you are. Let us see and feel your zealous compassion for us. Your victorious rage against our enemies. And believe your promises that for everyone who belongs to you, our future is good. Our future is resurrection. Lord, win our hearts to the beauty of who you are. Grow our faith in and love for you. Let that show itself in the lives we lead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.